And we find ourselves today in the eighth chapter. Uh, as Andrew said uh, when we first began our worship service, uh, today is Father's Day, and I, I do want to extend uh, my uh, happy Father's Day to you dads out there. I guess being a dad myself, uh, uh, I, I don't feel like I make as big of a deal out of Father's Day as I do about Mother's Day, so sorry about that. But I will tell you this, I don't have a, a Father's Day message for you guys, but I'll try to uh, lay off a little bit on the dads today. Uh, we'll see what happens, but I'll uh, maybe go after some other people instead of you. Um, half joking, uh, but I do hope you have a, a wonderful day, dads, and uh, we appreciate you and we love you. All right, let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's, only, there's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are once again gathered in your presence by the power of your Holy Spirit to thank you and praise you for being our Father. Father, we recognize that that means you give us your name. You give us your identity. You put us in Christ. That means that every single person in this room who is in Christ is enjoying an honored, beloved status that will last forever. And so, Father, we want to thank you and praise you for your fatherly love, your steadfast love that you show to a thousand generations. 
And Lord, we pray for those who maybe in this room, maybe listening online or uh, coming across this sermon at another time, are far from you. We ask that you would use your word to draw them close. Lord, we also want to pray for our teenagers, Lord, as they hear this sermon and then prepare to leave tomorrow to go to camp. I, I ask that you would begin to work powerfully in their hearts even now, even in this moment, to address the things that you want to point out to them and to point out how Jesus is the answer to the problems, the challenges, the conviction that they experience in their heart. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to come back together next week and hear testimony of how you work powerfully in their lives. Father, open up your word to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like most preachers, I can tend to be a little absent-minded when it comes to home improvement projects. A half-hour project at the Grogan household can stretch out to half a day or more. Most of that time being spent trying to remember where I left the pencil or the tape measure or the speed square. Uh, but when you're working with power tools, that tendency can lead to problems. How many of you know what I'm talking about? No, but I'm the only one. Okay. Uh, and even though I am a grown adult, there are probably some things that I really shouldn't be trying at home, and yet I do anyway. And by the way, I do have life insurance. But one experience sticks out in my mind. A few years ago, a friend who happens to belong to this church called me up and said, hey, uh, I, I'm cleaning out some storage space, and I have some things I need to get rid of. Would you be interested in a tool that I really don't use anymore. And I said, what kind of tool is it? He said, it's a radial arm saw. What's that? I had never heard of it. So he explained it to me. He said, you know, you just have to be careful with a tool like this because if you're not paying attention, you can really hurt yourself. So uh, naturally, I said, I'll take it. I had some projects I wanted to finish, and I like the fact that there are cuts that you can make with a radial arm saw that you cannot make with other types of, of saws, or, or you have to buy a lot of different tools to make those same cuts. And so I brought it home, and I had some extra cedar fence boards lying around from a previous project, and I thought, you know, I need to get used to using this radial arm saw, so I'll just make something simple. I'll build a little birdhouse and, and put it up in the tree next to our house. So I set up the saw, made some cross cuts, sliced through that cedar just like butter and worked really well. And then I realized two of the boards in this birdhouse needed to be a little narrower than the other two sides. So I was going to have to rip away about half an inch of material on a board that I had already cut to length. So I set up the saw the way I'd seen it done on YouTube. Turned the blade assembly 90 degrees I uh, got the carriage to be the right, the, the right distance from the fence to, to, to the width that I needed the boards to be. I got my push sticks, safety first, pulled down my sunglasses, turned on the saw, and began to slowly feed that board through uh, into the blade with the teeth spinning towards me, giving me what I thought was complete control. Now, if you're not familiar with the way a radial arm saw works, it's a, the blade 
rests on top of the table. So you're pushing underneath the blade, and, and the blade is spinning towards you. And so what happened was I took that board just 8 or 10 inches long, and I fed it into the blade, and everything went fine until the very end of the cut. Because when I pushed that last part of that workpiece underneath the blade, and it split apart into two pieces, the offcut scooted just a little bit to the right, just a half of a millimeter, and one of the teeth of that blade caught that offcut, and it became a projectile flying back and hit me in the chest. It left a nasty bruise, but it could have been a lot worse. It wasn't until later I figured out what happened, and this is just a tip for you guys, okay? So here's your Father's Day advice. If you are ripping boards on a radial arm saw, they need to be at least two feet in length, or it's just not safe to do, okay? Uh, and I didn't know that because I had only skimmed through the manual. It was there, and I read it later. I had taken the time to gain some knowledge about radial arm saws, but not very much. I'd gotten advice from a friend. I'd watched videos on YouTube. I had skimmed through the manual. I knew how to turn it on. I knew what all the little levers did. I could get the blade spinning and operate it and get it to cut wood, but what I perhaps didn't realize and appreciate is that the little bit of knowledge I had gained actually put me in a lot of danger. I knew I can rip boards on this saw, but I didn't know how to do it in a way that was safe. It was the great poet Alexander Pope who said in the 18th century, a little learning is a dangerous thing. A little bit of knowledge can really get you into trouble. You can teach a toddler how to start a car and maybe even put it in gear, but then you'd better get out of the way if he actually does that. You can teach an eight-year-old how to shoot a 22, but teaching him the discipline to avoid pointing that weapon at somebody else is a different thing entirely. And on a spiritual plane, this is what was happening in the Corinthian church. They had Knowledge, just enough to get themselves in trouble. Just enough where they could be harmful to somebody in their church. Just enough to cause serious spiritual injury. They knew their rights, or they thought they did. But in the exercise of those supposed rights, they were hurting the very people that Christ died to save. The next three chapters of 1 Corinthians all deal with a topic that was as mundane and everyday in the Corinthian church as uh, morning coffee and uh, traffic lights are to us. The, the issue of meat offered to idols. That seems foreign to us, but that was very much a part of everyday life for them. But in spite of the differences between our culture and theirs, the principles that Paul is going to share in, in chapters 8 through 10 still very much apply today. Today's text focuses on a temptation that we can all relate to, namely, to allow the things that we think we know to get in the way of helping the people that we love. And it's into this situation that Paul speaks a very important principle. Here's the central message of this text. Know your rights without knocking down your neighbor. Know your rights without knocking down your neighbor. 
That's the main idea. And Paul's going to do three things with it. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, he's going to explain it. And then in verses 4 through 7, he's going to give a specific example of it. And finally, in verses 8 through 13, he's going to apply it. So we have the principle explained, the principle exemplified, and the principle applied. Notice with me in the first place, the principle explained. The principle explained. This is the second time in this letter when Paul says, now concerning, and then goes on to talk about a different topic. What that means simply is that the Corinthians had asked him a question about the particular topic that he is addressing in these chapters. In chapter 7, he said, now concerning, and goes on to talk about sex and marriage and divorce because the Corinthians had asked him about that topic. And here in chapter 8, apparently, they had asked him about meat offered to idols. Now, we'll do a deep dive into the historical situation in Corinth in just a few moments, but before Paul really gets into the nitty-gritty details of what was taking place with meat offered to idols, he sort of summarizes his answer to them, to their question, in a general way in verses 1 through 3. There are two things that we consider when we're deciding what we are going to do when we're making decisions in everyday life. There are two factors that we take into account, and sometimes those two things conflict. The two things are what we know and who we love, knowledge and love. Paul says, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. If you're basing your decisions just on what you know, then you're going to steer off course. You're going to make some serious mistakes. You need to let something else govern those decisions, and that something else is love. You say, well, I don't understand. Isn't knowledge a good thing? Isn't it better than being an ignoramus? You ever met anyone who would rather not know anything? They like to be ignorant. We don't want to be that person, I hope. What's wrong with knowledge? Well, knowledge, if it's really knowledge and not just arrogance, is a good thing, but it has serious limitations. And Paul actually mentions three of them. First of all, knowledge has the potential to lead to pride. Knowledge has the potential to lead to pride. Have you noticed this? Knowledge, he says, puffs up. It inflates. The more you know, the more you're tempted to think highly of yourself. The, the more you're tempted to trust yourself rather than reaching out for help or guidance, the less desire you might have to pray, the less you're likely to entertain the idea that you might be wrong. Here's what's ironic about that. Paul says knowledge puffs up. That image is exactly right because when you puff something up, imagine a balloon or something that you fill with air. You pump it up and you puff it up and what's in there? Not much. Nothing of substance, just air. And that's what happens when we allow knowledge to make us proud. It puffs us up. We get a little bit of knowledge, and that makes us proud. And then what happens to people who are proud? They become blinded to reality. So there's this ironic process that we follow. Knowledge, we get a little bit of knowledge. It makes us proud. That pride makes us ignorant. And this is what happens when we allow knowledge to become the controlling principle, the only governing principle in our life. We've got to be careful about this because it can make us proud. And if you let that happen, it will be worse than if you never knew anything in the first place. Knowledge can make you proud. Secondly, though, it's also limited because knowledge is incomplete. Knowledge is incomplete. Notice verse 2. If anyone imagines 
that he knows something he does not know yet as he ought to know. The Corinthian believers imagined that knowledge was sort of a one-time gift bestowed on them. When they were born again by the Holy Spirit, they imagined that they had all arrived, that they pretty much knew everything that there was to know. You ever meet anyone like this? They uh, are living life in, in rebellion against God. Maybe they're a Christian that's been kind of backsliding, or they're not a Christian, they become a Christian, and then the Holy Spirit convicts them and gives them the power to repent and change their life. And, and so what do they do? They start reading their Bible. They start coming to church. Maybe they listen to a lot of sermons on their way to and from work in the car. They read pamphlets and books, and after three months of that, they have a lot more knowledge than they did before. And what, here's what happens, guys. Satan notices. Satan's armies see that, and they say, okay, I've got to change my tactics a little bit. Instead of trying to entice this person to go back to their addictions and their outwardly rebellious lifestyle, we're going to change tactics, and we want to get this person to focus on the things that he knows, to imagine I've arrived. It's this obvious chink in the armor. I've got an answer for just about every theological question that you could ask. I know no, nobody in here has probably met anybody like that, right? But Paul says here in verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. The point is, if you're, you're never going to know enough where what you know becomes the guiding principle on, on how you make decisions. There's always going to be massive gaps in your knowledge. You don't comprehensively understand the character of God. You might know God, but you don't know everything there is to know about God. You don't comprehensively know the thoughts and desires of men and women. You don't fully understand the deep things of your own heart. You don't understand the connections between events that occurred in the past and why this happened and then that happened. You don't understand what would have happened if this or that circumstance had been different. You certainly don't know the future. You don't know the reasoning behind God's decision to allow various things to happen in your life or the life of your neighbor. There are literally trillions of things that you do not know. Your knowledge will always be incomplete. We forget this. So easily, because unlike our ancestors, we have so much knowledge right at our fingertips. We can get information with the click of a button on our smartphone. And so we begin to imagine that we know pretty much everything that we need to know. And Paul's reminding us, your knowledge is incomplete. It's not a sufficient guide to making decisions, because in comparison to God, we know next to nothing, and that is never going to change. Knowledge is not a sufficient guide to making life decisions because knowledge can lead to pride because knowledge is incomplete, but there's a third limitation to knowledge. Knowledge is often impersonal. It's often impersonal. Here's what I mean. Uh, there are really three types of knowledge, at least. Uh, knowledge of facts. One plus one equals two. Uh, there are 66 books in the Bible, that sort of thing. Knowledge of facts. There are knowledge, there's knowledge of skills, how to build a table, how to drive a car, how to offer advice to somebody, how to live in the world. It's knowledge of skills. And then thirdly, there is knowledge of persons. I, I know I have a personal relationship with my 
friend from high school or my wife or my children. It's knowledge of persons, three types of knowledge, and they're not equally important. The most important type of knowledge is knowledge of a person, knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, really having a relationship with him. But what we tend to do is we reverse the order. We say, I'm going to base my decisions not on who I know, but the things that I know, what I know. And then after that, sure, I need to learn how to do some things. And then number three, very, very much in last place, is my relationship with God. What we need to do is flip that on its end. It's really uh, about knowing God uh, instead of just knowing facts. It's kind of like this. Picture somebody famous, somebody that you respect, somebody that you appreciate, Maybe it's a musician or an actor or the president or Pastor Andrew or something like that. I don't know. Um, that was a joke. Um, uh, uh, an athlete. I, the point is, you, you know who they are. And imagine telling somebody, I know that guy. Oh, okay, you, you know him. Well, prove it. Yeah, there he is right there. And you go up to that person and from a distance you say, hey, I, I know who you are. And they look at you like, Okay. And then they go about their business. What did you just prove? You don't know them. <laughs> you know who they are. You may know some things about them, but you don't really have a personal relationship with that person. That's not enough. The real question is whether that person recognizes you. Do they know you? And that's where Paul brings the focus here in verse 3. He says, if you love God, you're known by God. That's a lot more valuable than just knowing things, knowing your rights, knowing about things. Here's the point that Paul's making. The Corinthians needed to be careful because they were letting impersonal knowledge replace relational knowledge. And Paul says in verse 3, it's not about whether you know your rights or whether you know stuff about the gospel, or whether you know things that others don't about the nature of the spiritual realm, or even whether you know stuff about the covenants and character of God, all those are facts. You know facts, but you're replacing that impersonal knowledge with a real relationship with a person who loves you, and you ought to grow in love as well. And it's for these reasons that we need to be careful about allowing what we know to control the decisions that we make. Knowledge, if you're not careful, can lead to pride. Knowledge is incomplete. Knowledge is often impersonal. And that's why Paul says we need a different approach. We need a different controlling principle to govern the way we make decisions. Yes, it's good to know stuff, but it's not enough. A better way is to walk in love. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Remember the governing image of this letter. Remember Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you are holy. You are saints. That is, you're the temple, the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. You're built up together as a building in which the Lord Jesus Christ, in the person of his spirit, lives. Not inflated, not just a, a, a house that's made of cards, but a strong building, brick Joined to brick, stone to stone, square and plumb, and, and that's what you need to be. And so if we're going to be the temple of the Holy Spirit as a church, then we need to be building one another up. We need to be strengthening each other, strengthening each other in our faith. And, and one of the things that Paul means to show the Corinthians is that if that's true, then Christ didn't save us so that we could just be gratified in ourselves, so that we could serve ourselves. Christ saved us so that we could build up somebody else. 
Christ saved us so that we could serve the other person, so that we could all together be a glorious sanctuary for the Holy Spirit. He's got more to say about love in this letter, but here in chapter 8, suffice it to say this. Love means refusing to exercise one, one's rights if that also means tempting my brother to sin. If I love the brothers and sisters that God has brought into my church family or my nuclear family, if I really love them, then I'm not going to exercise my rights if it means leading them into sin. I, I love you guys, so I'm not going to do anything that will make it hard for you to follow Christ. I'm willing to say no to the stuff that I want to do, to stuff that I feel justified in doing, if it helps you love Jesus more and pursue purity in your life more faithfully. That's the general principle explained. So let me ask you a question. Is that how you live? Is that how you operate in your home? Kids, teenagers, you guys have been off of school for a few weeks now. And if you have siblings, is that how it's gone in your house? Is it possible that in your interactions with brother or sister, you've been more focused on your rights than on building up the other person? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, hey, it's my turn to pick the video game. It's my sister's turn to clean the bathroom today, so I think I'll be a little less careful about the mess I'm making. It's my turn to sit in the front of the car. What are we doing? We're focused on what we think we deserve. We're focused on what our rights are instead of on loving the other person. What difference would it make instead, if instead of waking up and fighting for your own way, your own pleasures, your own glory, you decided, today I'm going to build up my brother. Today I'm going to build up my sister. Today I'm going to serve my mom and dad. Instead of exercising my rights, I'm going to love them. That's not a romantic or a sappy kind of thing. It's, a, it's just about being selfless. It's about putting the other person first. And it, it's a much better way to live than just focusing on getting what's coming to me on my rights. That's the principle explained. But notice from verses 4 through 7, the principle exemplified. The principle exemplified. It might feel foreign to us, but one of the areas of life in which this dynamic between knowing one's rights and loving one's neighbor played out for the Corinthian Christians was in this area of meat offered to idols. Uh, it's really important to understand uh, that there are profound differences between the way that we live today and the way that the Corinthians lived in the first century. There were major differences. For example, most of us consume meat every day, and, and thank God for it right? Uh, but if you were living in first century Corinth, uh, most people couldn't afford to eat meat every day. Uh, by the way, we can store meat in a refrigerator or in a freezer. They didn't have those back then. I know this is groundbreaking, earth-shattering, surprising information, but uh, it's very, very relevant to the things that he's talking about. Obviously, uh, the, the distance, uh, here's another thing. The the, the distance between, for the, for the average person, between a living animal and the cheeseburger on your table was a lot shorter than it is for us today. Uh, for me, at least, when we want to eat meat, we go to a restaurant or we go to the store and we buy a prepackaged package of meat. For some of you, you've had to slaughter your own animals, so you get this, but in ancient times, the distance was a lot shorter uh, between 
when that animal got slaughtered and when it ended up on your table. Another important difference is the centrality of religious life in antiquity when compared to today. Everything had religious significance and overtones. Nowadays, if you go buy meat at the store, that is not a... Now, some of you might disagree with this, but it's not a religious exercise to do that. It's just a, an economic activity. Uh, it's not an act of worship, right? Right? <laughs> uh, buying food is just buying food. There's nothing religious about it, but... Uh, back in ancient times, almost everything that people did had some sort of meaning to it, some religious overtones. And so with those differences in the back of your mind, think about a city like Corinth. When the Romans rebuilt the city of Corinth in the first century BC, they constructed temples in all the prominent places in the city. Temples to all sorts of gods, Zeus or Jupiter or Athena or whoever, whoever it was. And, and, and attached to those temples were uh, these large dining rooms. Uh, you didn't have Cracker Barrel or uh, Texas Roadhouse or Jimmy's Cafe back then. You, if you wanted to go out to eat, it was at one of those dining rooms attached to the temple. And then right next to the temple and the dining room attached to the temple was a meat market. It was right there, just as close as I am to you, just yards away. It was all kind of stuffed in there together. The temple, the dining room, and then the meat market where you could go and buy meat. So what would happen is that if you were a wealthy Roman colonist and you were a faithful, pious, religious Roman person, you would every once in a while to make prayer, to, to give thanks, to honor your God, to pray about something, you would bring a live animal to the temple, whatever temple it was, and you with your family would give that animal to the priest. The priest would slaughter it, take out the entrails, examine them for omens, and then burn all the stuff that you wouldn't want to eat on the altar, but the rest of the animal would be consumed as a feast. Now, even a big family can't eat an entire cow, let's say, uh, in one sitting, and of course they didn't have freezers. You couldn't package it and put it in the freezer for later. So there was always too much, and so they would take the leftovers and they would bring it to that dining room. And if you were a wealthy person living in Corinth, uh, it, was, it was normal for you to eat dinner, eat supper at the, that dining room that's attached to the temple. But the meaning of that, there was a bit of ceremony attached to this type of meal. Uh, it would be like uh, one of these gods inviting you over to his own house for dinner, and you're having a meal with the god. And so that's where wealthy people in a city like Corinth would get together, and they would network, and they would trade favors, and they would get business done while they were sitting around the table consuming that meal, and all the while doing so in the presence of the so-called god. Now, there was still usually leftovers even after that. And so whatever was left, the priests would take they would bring it down just a few yards away to the meat market and sell the rest of that meat. And then if you were living in the city, you could go buy the meat in the meat market and you didn't necessarily knew, know where it came from. Now there's one more piece of information you need to keep in mind. Meat was so expensive that the average person living in Corinth would not be able to afford it. But on days when there was a big feast, a holiday dedicated to this or that false god, there would be so many sacrifices in, in these temples that they would sort of flood the market with meat. 
And so, again, there's no freezer. So you can't freeze it. You can't buy it later. You can't cook it later. You've got to cook it right then. And so if you are a poor person, normally I can't afford meat. But on those days when there are all these sacrifices, the meat market is flooded, the prices go down, and now I can afford to eat meat. So you can see how this created a matter of, of conscience for the Corinthian believers. If you were a wealthy Corinthian believer, uh, they, the, uh, you would really feel the pinch of, of not being able to eat in those dining rooms. That's where you conducted business. That's where you made your connections. That's where uh, you collected favors and paid them out. So if you cut yourself off from that world, you were saying no thanks to all the economic uh, opportunities, the social opportunities that your family would have had otherwise. So if you could find yourself, find a way to tell yourself, this is okay. God doesn't care if I go eat this idol temple. Then you were going to have a strong encouragement to do that. If you're a wealthy Corinthian, that would be the temptation. If you're a poor Corinthian believer, uh, the only time they could afford meat was when there was a feast. So even if it bothered your conscience, you were going to be tempted to explain it away. So that's the background. And beginning in verse 4, Paul says, here's what we know. Given all of that, all right, the Corinthians, they were just living in that. For us, that seems foreign, but that's what they were living with every day. So then into that world, Paul speaks, beginning in verse 4, and he says, here's what we know. Here's what I'll concede to those of you who are strongly motivated to exercise your so-called rights. We know that an idol has no real existence. What that means is when you go into that temple and you see that block of wood or that hunk of metal or uh, stone, what you're looking at is a hunk of wood or block, uh, a block of, of, of steel or, or, or stone, okay? It's just an idol. It doesn't have any real existence in and of itself. Uh, we know that. We also know that there's only one God. That comes from passages like Deuteronomy 6. It comes from passages like the one Sarah read earlier in the service. There's only one real God. So we know that. Now, Later, Paul is going to clarify in chapter 10 that standing behind those idols is a whole spiritual realm of demons that sort of operate over and above the, the idolatrous worship of uh, a place like Corinth. He, he says, but he says in verse 7, he says, my focus is elsewhere now. In verse 7 he says, uh, not everybody shares that knowledge. Not everybody has this understanding. Not everybody keeps in the front of their mind that the idol is nothing and that there's only one God. Some people are weak, which just means their conscience is sensitive and that they just don't feel secure doing what other people have no problem with. Uh, in other words, it's not better necessarily to be strong or weak. It's not about one being better than the other. It's simply about my conscience is sensitive in this area or my conscience isn't bothered by this thing at all. So there's people in the Corinthian church whose consciences are sensitive to this issue of meat offered to idols, and then there are people who aren't bothered by it at all. And so basically you've got this new Christian who grew up in a pagan family. He's been taught to fear the pagan gods. He trusts Christ. He renounces all of that. But then he comes through the, the city, and he looks into the dining room, and he sees his brother in Christ, this guy that goes to church with him. And that guy is see, seated there in an idol temple, and he's eating meat that had been offered to an idol, and he's having fellowship with a false god. 
And so what is he tempted to do? He's tempted to do three things. First of all, he's tempted in that moment to despise the character of God. He's tempted to despise the character of God because here's what he's thinking. He's thinking, okay, that guy was in church with me on Sunday. Now he's in an idol temple. He must be having fellowship with this false god. Maybe the one true God that I've heard about in the gospel, maybe the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is just one of many gods. And and so he begins to think of God, the one true God, as less than he actually is. He's tempted to despise the character of God. The second thing he's tempted to do is divide his devotion. Divide his devotion. He thinks, well, if it's true that there's still something valid about these idol feasts, then maybe I'd better hedge my bets too. And we see this all the time in in, uh, cross-cultural ministry context where people say, okay, I believe in Jesus, but I'm also going to make sure I sacrifice to these other gods because I don't want them to be mad at me either. And so he's tempted because he sees his brother in that dining room in the in the uh, idol temple, he's tempted to divide his devotion and say, I'm worshiping the one true God, but I'm also going to make sure I take care of all these other false gods as well. And then he's tempted to do something else. Number three, he's tempted to damage his conscience. He's tempted to damage his conscience. In other words, he believes in his heart, this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Now, that's very dangerous because on the one hand, doing something that you believe is wrong is always in and of itself wrong. Did you know that? When you believe in your heart, hey, this is rebellion against the one true God. This is disobedience to the most high God. This is dishonoring to the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet you do it anyway. That's sin. That's still displeasing to God because in your heart you believe you're doing what's wrong. If you believe it's wrong to watch this or that TV show or you believe it's wrong to drink alcohol or you believe it's wrong to wear a certain type of clothing or whatever it is, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. If you believe it's wrong for you to do that, then don't do it. Don't go against your conscience as long as your conscience is submitted to the word of God. So it's dangerous to go against your conscience for that reason, but it's dangerous as well because the more you do that, the more you ignore your conscience, the less capable you're going to be of making any kind of moral decision at all and standing for what's right. Because here's how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit works through the faculty of your conscience. So if you experience conviction of sin... That's the part of you that is experiencing that conviction. It's your conscience. So if you are training yourself constantly to ignore your conscience, you're you're always saying no to what you believe is right and wrong, then what you're doing is you're cutting yourself off from the personal leading of the Holy Spirit, and you're searing your conscience. It's very, very spiritually dangerous, and you'll get to a point where you have no sense of right or wrong, and you'll be unable to stand against the deceptions of the enemy. Now, that's serious. That's destructive. It's very harmful to someone to, to question the unique holiness of God. It's very harmful to place some of your trust in God and some of your trust in a false God. It's very harmful to ignore your conscience. See, this isn't a case where 
someone has a lot of scruples. This is what we often think when we read a passage like this. What you're doing offended me. You know, when you went out and, I don't know, bought a new car, that offended me. <laughs> or when you went out and you, you uh, uh, the Corinthians, you're eating in an idol temple, that offends me, that bothers me. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about somebody who sees what somebody else is doing and then they're led to sin against their own conscience as a result. It's not about someone being offended over someone else's Christian liberty. That's a person with a very strong conscience, very secure in their opinions, who's trying to control somebody else. We're talking about a person who has a lot of uncertainty, a person who is insecure, a person whose conscience is sensitive. And Paul gets on the Corinthians' case because they're saying basically, I don't really care about this person. I don't care what happens to him. I, my belly is more important to me than my brother. And in verses 8 through 13, Paul says, I want you to think a little differently about all this. And so briefly, let's consider not only the principle explained and the principle exemplified, but thirdly, the principle applied. The principle applied. Now, I'll get right to the heart of the matter here in these last verses in this chapter. Look at verses, verses 10 and following. If anyone who sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. That's the point. Here's what Paul is saying. Christ gave up everything for this person. Christ laid aside the glories of heaven. Christ endured the poverty, the toil, the mocking, the hatred, the pain, the rejection, the wrath of God so that he might welcome sinners into his own family, rescuing them from sin and death and hell. Christ unites with this person. Christ welcomes him not just as a friend, but as a member of his own body. And you can't even change your diet? That doesn't make sense. What Paul is saying is, have some perspective. Like, which is more important, souls or steaks? You say, well, I, I know what I have the right to do. Christ had the right to turn his back on us. Christ had the right to wipe the slate clean, to pour out his righteous judgment and start over. He, he could have slain the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the soldiers and the governor and all the people who conspired to kill him. Christ knew his rights, but instead of knocking people down, he laid down his own life for the sake of the other person. Christ rescued sinners. And can't we say no to our desires if it means building up a brother or sister for whom Christ died? You say, well, we don't live in the first century. This isn't really relevant to me. I mean, I, would, I don't really eat meat offered to idols, so I'm good. Well, I hope you understand it's not about the specific example that Paul's using primarily. It's about... It's about the, uh, the way that we uh, love our brother in spite of what our rights happen to be. This, there are plenty of opportunities to forgo your rights in order to build somebody else up. Say, I have the right to post on social media just about whatever I want. It's my 
Facebook page or it's my Instagram account or it's my whatever. Maybe so. You know your rights. But what about your niece who scrolls past it? Is it helpful to her? Is it going to build her up? You say, I have the right to wear whatever I want to wear. Okay, let's say for the sake of argument that that's true. Do you really think dressing immodestly is going to build up your brother or your sister in Christ? Say, I have the right to miss church every once in a while. You don't have to be in church to follow Jesus. You don't have to gather with God's people to worship Christ. Fair enough. But when your kids see that sleeping in or making it to a Rangers game or an extra hour in the deer stand is more important to you than gathering with God's people, do you think that that's going to build them up? There's a word for this type of thinking. When I say my rights are more important than everybody else, or when I just focus on my rights and I just don't think about anybody else at all, there's a word for that. It's called selfishness. And it's just the opposite of what what Jesus has exemplified for us. You don't find that attitude in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't need to be that way if you're in Christ. You can say no to yourself. You can say no, listen, to business opportunities. You can say no to fun and enjoyment. You can say no to all sorts of things that you might think are your right in order to build up your brother or sister. How strong of a church would we be if we all said, I am going to set aside my rights because I know that this is going to build up my brothers or my sisters? How strong would your marriage be if you said, I'm going to forego my rights because I want to build up my spouse? How strong would your family be if you said, I'm going to forego my rights because I want to build up my children and I want to make sure that their faith is strong in the Lord Jesus Christ? Folks, if we would say, I don't care about what my rights are. I'm going to just let that go. I'm going to say, it's all good. It's okay. I don't need those things in order to build up my brother in Christ. God will use that. He'll use that to draw people closer to him. And what, what will happen is the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the sanctuary in which Jesus dwells, the local church will become stronger. It will be built up. And people will be strengthened to serve the Savior. Let's remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's follow his example in recognizing the precious value of the people sitting near us. Know your rights, but in the process, don't knock down your neighbor. Would you pray with me now? Father, uh, each of us is in a different situation, and there are different ways in which we're tempted to ignore the needs of others in order to get what we want. And so I'm asking now that, that you would send your spirit to just clearly, obviously, put your finger on those areas where we need to just say, I'm going to let go of this. I don't need to eat certain things. I don't need to enjoy certain things if it means it's going to tear down my brother. I don't need to exercise this or that right if it means it's going to harm my sister in Christ. 
Lord, I pray that you would cause each one of us to follow the example of the Apostle Paul, to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just follow their example, not just follow Christ's example, but really live knowing that Christ has given us everything we need. So Lord, I pray that you would make us a church that says, it's okay, I don't need to exercise my rights in order to build up other people. Lord, I pray that you would begin to do that work even right now in this very moment, Lord. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.